Turn, if you would, to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. It's been a rough week at the Scarborough House this week. My wife is gone. She's in upstate New York for a family reunion. She and uh, got to ride around in, my, in her uncle's uh, Model T the other day, so that was fun. He restores them. A couple of weeks ago, we started chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins the application portion of the book of Romans. We started with three commands in the first two verses. The first was that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. It is not that our bodies are evil. It's just that they're not supposed to control our lives. Our spiritual side is supposed to be in control of how we live. The next two commands are to not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We renew our minds through the word of God, through the movement of the Holy Spirit, as we interact with the word of God, and the Holy Spirit prompts us on how we ought to think so that we can then know what the will of God is. Last week we covered a couple of passages dealing with not thinking, of, not thinking too highly of ourselves. It is our natural tendency to think that the universe revolves around us. It doesn't. You probably have figured that out by now. Unfortunately, in figuring it out, it's probably just frustrated you because you would like to think that it does center around you, but it doesn't. And God told us that we cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own, therefore he has given us gifts. We cannot do it on our own, therefore he has given us a community, the body of believers. God has given us individually things that help us collectively do the will of God. We are not called to do it on our own. We are not expected to do it on our own. And we probably can't do it on our own. I would contend, yes, if God planted you on a desert island and you were the only person there, he would provide the resources that you need. But you're not on a desert island. You're sitting here in the midst of a community of believers. And God expects us collectively to grow into the image of Christ. So, that gets us down to about verse 9, which is where we'll pick up today. It is very interesting because verse 9 to the end of the chapter are a series of very short commands. Oftentimes they're in pairs, don't do this, do this. But it's just command, 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 command. I counted 29 of them. I decided that the next time I teach the book of Romans, I'm going to have a lesson on each one of them. But I will spare you that, so we'll try to cover them in a week, maybe two. See how fast we go. But the question you have to ask yourself at the beginning is, why does God give us this list? Why does he give us a list of things that we ought and ought not to do? The first reason that we could think of is that God gives us this list because he's telling us what we need to do in order to be saved. Well, if you believe that, you haven't paid attention to Romans chapters 1 through eight salvation is the work of god 
through Jesus Christ, whereby we are saved by faith alone, by the work of Jesus Christ. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 go to great lengths talking about you can work yourself and work yourself and work yourself and you will not earn a place of right standing, righteousness, before God. It is Christ's righteousness that is given to us that saves us, not keeping some list of rules and regulations. Okay, so it's not given to us in order to tell us how to be saved. Maybe it's given to us to tell us what we have to do in order to keep being saved. You know, it's like, okay, you got in by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now it's up to you. Here's the list. Keep it. You're on your own. But the scripture tells us that that's not true. The book of Galatians deals with the fact, having begun by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, do you think you can accomplish your sanctification by your works? And the answer is, heck no. Nothing on this list is going to make us stay saved. What's going to make us stay saved, is that a right word? Who knows? What's going to keep us saved is the promise of God that he who began a good work in us will complete that work. He's going to do it. Okay, so it's not to get us saved, and it's not to keep us saved. Why did he give it to us then? Maybe he gave it to us as a club to beat our neighbors with. Oh, you like that one, right? You're chuckling because you know it's true. You're going to go through this list of 29 things, and you're going to sit there and think, yeah, if my spouse did number 14, our marriage would be much better. The lousy bum. If the other people down at that church did number 18, ah, life would be so much better, at least for me. And we look at these kind of things outwardly as a club to beat other people. We see this in the scripture. They were called the Pharisees. I'm holier than thou, and I'm going to beat you over the head with that until you acknowledge the fact that I'm holier than thou. No, he didn't give it to us as a club. Remember last week's lesson. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think that you are the standard of right and wrong. More about that in just a moment. So if it's not to save us and if it's not to keep us saved and it's not meant to be a club to beat people over the head with, why bother with them? And there's actually a lot of people who believe that. There are those who believe, and they would never use these words, but they believe that God put these things in here as a test. It's a test to see if you would fall into legalism. Here's a list of things that you can't do, and if you think you can do it, it proves you're a legalist. Ha! It's a test. You failed it. I remember years ago teaching a lesson, years, years ago, and quoted, I mean, just kind of in passing, a New Testament verse basically saying, watch what your tongue says because you're going to be judged by it. And I had somebody throw up their hand and go, but that doesn't apply to us because we're saved by grace. It's just a test. I had a coworker years ago who I am convinced thought that the company gives you vacation time as a test to see if you're serious about work. Because if you're serious about work, you wouldn't take your vacation. 
Really? It's a test. Is that why God gave us this list? No. God gave us this list because having been saved by grace alone, we are to put off the sinful nature, the life of the flesh. We are to follow the life of the Spirit. We are to be conformed to the image of his Son. We are to not be conformed, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we are not to be conformed to the world's way of doing things, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do we do that? That's what God's going to tell us in this passage. He is going to tell us, here are the things that will distinguish you from the world. Here are the things that it takes that it takes to demonstrate true love to other people. You see, we view love, and I use love as the example because it happens to be the first command. We use love as an emotional response. Oh, I love you. Oh, I love the dog. Oh, no, I don't love the dog. Oh, I love pizza. Oh, and we just use this word as I have warm. No. What does it mean to love one another? This was, remember last week's sermon? What does it mean to love one another? Here it is, right here. Practical steps that it takes to love one another. But wait a minute. I'm going to read this list, and there's going to be things that I don't like. Okay? So, (laughs) what does your liking or not liking have to do with it? In fact, I would have this tendency to say, if you don't like it, if you don't like it, that probably means it's something you need to work on. Or you read this list and you find the ones that you really do like. That's good. But your like or dislike does not change the word of God. God is giving us a list of instructions. But they're hard. Some are but I don't want to do them. There's a problem. You know, the Olympics are going on, so I'm obligated to throw in an Olympic reference in every lesson. (laughs) I could tell you what it takes to be an Olympic athlete. Okay? Not you personally, or me personally. Face it, we're all too old. You have to start out with basic physiological requirements right but beyond that you've got to work real hard you've got to work on your diet real hard you've got to work on your mental attitude real hard all these things you have to do in order to accomplish that goal of being an olympic athlete what if you as a person who desired to be an olympic athlete Every morning woke up and go, hmm, today do I want to work out? Eh, I don't know. Let me flip a coin and see. You know, the truth is, I don't really want to do that. It's really not that pleasant to go out and swim for four hours a day. It just isn't. I don't think I'll do it today. If you adopt that attitude, you will never, ever, 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 ever be an Olympic athlete. 
The goal is to be an Olympic athlete. The means to get you there are exercise, diet, working on your mental attitude, etc., etc. You don't sit there and think, today do I want to do the means to get to the goal. You look at the goal, and the means are given to you, and you either do them or you're not. Our goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if I wake up this morning and go, "Eh, do I want to be nice to people today? Nah. (laughs) Do I want to be patient today? Nah. They're a bunch of losers anyway. We look at the individual requirements and we think, do I want to do this? That's not the focus. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ, and this is what it takes to get there. But what if I don't want to be conformed to the image of Christ? Then the red flag comes up. Are you, in fact, a believer? I cannot tell. You can fake it to me all the days of your life. But I will say, if you have no desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, it is hard to say that you are a believer. Just something to think about. (sighs) That's the introduction. Now we're going to work our way through this list. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're done. Let love be genuine. What does genuine love mean? It means that it is without hypocrisy, without the desire to accomplish something else. This is not the teenage boy telling the teenage girl, I love you, so she'll have sex with him. That is not genuine love. This is love that desires what is good for the beloved, whatever that good might be. It is interesting because we as believers are accused frequently, all the time, of hypocrisy. Let love be genuine means that there is no hypocrisy in it. The world loves calling us hypocrites. Why? Because we don't do what we say we ought to do? Well, 
We have a standard that is the image of Christ. I hate to tell it to you and I hate to tell it to the world, but we're never in this world going to live up to the perfect standard of Christ. So if that's what it means to be a hypocrite, we're all hypocrites. But what it means really to be a hypocrite is when I preach something that I have no intention at all of doing. And there's a distinction there. You have a mm, four-year-old grandchild who in a moment of enthusiasm wants to prepare breakfast. They burn the toast. The eggs are a strange shade of green. Who knows what happened to the bacon? And they plop it in front of you and you say, thanks, that's wonderful. And you know what? It is. Why? Because you are honoring their enthusiasm to try to please you. And you know that's good. You know that's good. It's not perfect. In fact, it's far from perfect. You know, you may be slipping the eggs to the dog under the table. It doesn't matter. You love the fact that they wanted to please you. The fact that it wasn't perfect is beside the point. Fast forward. We'll use the stereotype. You have the teenager who has no desire at all to please you. And you know it. And they know it. There is a difference in the life of a believer who is trying to do the will of God, however imperfectly they do it, and God says, yes, I like that enthusiasm. But the world will look at it and say, well, you don't measure up to what you preach. That's true. But we know that we preach that we don't measure up to what we preach. Those who preach and pretend that they measure up to what they preach are the hypocrites. Once again, back to our good old friends, the Pharisees. I'm perfect, and you're not, and I'm going to beat you over the head with it. And what did Jesus, Jesus say about the Pharisees? You are whitewashed tombs. We've heard that phrase all of our lives, but we're not really sure what it means. You know, you go out to the cemetery, and there's a mausoleum, and somewhere inside there's a body. And somebody has come and done a good job of decorating the outside of that crypt, that mausoleum. So it looks really good. But inside of it, there's just death. And that was what Jesus was saying about those who pretend that they have a level of perfection that they don't really obtain. So what does it mean that love is genuine. It means it is without hypocrisy. It is without ulterior motive. <clears throat> Maybe we should just stop on the first one and leave right here. Let's keep going and see if we can get some insight into what that means. In fact, depending on who you read about these passages, they start grouping them together. And there are some who would have you believe, and I'm not going to argue with them, that all of these are under the heading of love should be genuine. Love should be without hypocrisy. 
because the rest of them are showing us what that means. Let's continue. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. You could write a textbook on ethics about this verse. Because in our modern society, the question that pops into your mind at the very beginning is who gets to decide what is good and what is evil. In the absence of God, in the absence of a God who has communicated his word to us, who gets to determine what good and evil are? Do we do it by vote? 51% of the people in a given community decide that this behavior is good, therefore it is good. Do we decide it by just popularity? Do we decide it by whoever screams the loudest? Do we decide it by who has the sword? Is that what determines what good and evil are? Biblically, you know what the answer is, right? Remember our statement from last week? There is a God, and you're not it. There is a God, and he has spoken to us, and he has revealed to us what good means. And he has revealed to us what evil is. Do you want a complete list? No, I'm not going to give it to you. But I'll tell you how to find it. Go to Genesis chapter 1 and start reading until you get to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. God has revealed to us what is good and what is evil. The knowledge of what is good and what is evil has been given to us. The question is, what do we think about it? What do we think about it? I have certain desires. Okay? I don't like cauliflower. Okay? We could have a vote on that one. We're probably in agreement. I don't like sushi. Raw fish. Hmm, I stepped on some toes there because my kids and a lot of you like that. I have things I like and I have things I don't like. Where did those likes come from? Well, I kind of grew up to learn to like certain things, and I grew up to not like other things, and some of those likes and dislikes changed. My desires grew or shrank as I worked my way through life. How do I get a desire to do what God says is good, and how do I get a desire to abhor what God says is evil. You see, I'm going to wake up tomorrow in this society. I'm going to watch the TV programs of this society. I'm going to read the newspapers, read the magazines, interact with people who live in this society, who have a list of what they think is the good. These are the things you ought to pursue. Power, wealth, affluence fun. Those are the things that are good. Go after those. I should stay away from those things that are evil. 
What, are, what does our society view as evil? Not much. Smoking. We're still kind of in agreement that smoking is evil. It's kind of morally neutral, so we can go after that one. Nazis. Okay? You want to call somebody evil, you call them a Nazi. There's a handful of things that we still think are evil. Being intolerant. The world has a good, and the world has an evil. Back to verses 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind needs to be infiltrated with the word of God so that we know what is important to God and is what is not important to God. In fact, what is repulsive to God. What is important to God? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't kill. Do not commit adultery. Honor the Sabbath day. Do not covet. Oh, wait. Wait, 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 wait. I know that. That's legalism. That's following the law. No. They asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Encapsulated in that is all the law. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Have good feelings toward them? Well, you ought to have that. It means you don't covet his stuff. You don't have sex with his wife. You don't steal his things. You don't kill him. That's what it means. Until our minds are saturated by the word of God, we will continue to assume that what the world says is good is good and what the world says is evil is evil. There may have been a time in particular societies at particular points in history where the local understanding of good and evil kind of correlated with the word of God. We're not living in that time right now. The first step of showing genuine love is to understand in God's economy what is good and what is evil. The second step is to learn to love the one and abhor the other. What does that mean? It means your desires are focused on that which God says is good. And you find revulsion at those things that he says are evil. And the world is going to look at you. They're going to put their finger in your nose and they're going to say, my, aren't you being judgmental? Why? Because they are convinced that you and I or some person a thousand years ago randomly made this stuff up in order to appease their own political agenda. I hate to tell you this, 
we didn't make this stuff up. We didn't make it up, and we don't have the ability to ignore it. Oh, we can ignore it, but we will suffer the consequences of ignoring it. There's going to be consequences. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What does it mean to hold fast to something? Live it. Hmm? Live it. Continue to believe it? You are falling off a cliff. And there is a rope. And you kind of gently grab the rope. No. You grab onto that rope and you hold onto that rope with every fiber of your being. Why? Because you know that rope is the only thing that keeps you from destruction. Huh. Hold on, hold fast to that which is good. This isn't a passive, oh, I think I like vanilla ice cream instead of chocolate. This is transform your mind so that you understand this takes all your energy to hold on to hold fast to that which is good. But then comes the harder question. What does it mean to abhor something? Hmm? Hate. Hmm. Despise. We don't like those words. We don't like those words at all. Question. Are you to abhor people who do wicked things or are you to abhor the wickedness that has driven them to that point? And here's the interesting thing. I know this because I saw it on a bumper sticker this week. <laughs> I'm not making this up. The world refuses to acknowledge that distinction. I saw a bumper sticker this week that said, love the sinner, hate the sin, except everything after the word love was struck through. You see what I'm saying? All it said was love. But love without the context of what is good and what is evil is not love. I've used this illustration before. You wake up in the middle of the night, your neighbor's house is on fire. What does love require you to do? You run over, well, you tell your wife to call 911, you run over there, you bang on the doors, you try to wake them up. But you know, really, they had a rough day and they're asleep. You don't want to interfere with them when they're asleep, right? I mean, they might be having a very pleasant dream. They do need their sleep. Maybe the loving thing to do is to ignore it, and in the morning you'll talk about it. That makes no sense at all. If the world is going to hell in a literal handbasket, what is the only loving thing we can do? 
tell them the word of God. Now, we are to speak the truth in love. Remember where we started? This list is not a list of clubs for you to beat people over the head with. It is the list that we as sinners saved by the grace of God use to inform other sinners what it means to live a life that is pleasing to God. Abhor what is evil. Love, hold fast to that which is good. How do we know what is good? Well, let's keep reading the word of God. Love must be, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, this is a contest. Literally, this is a contest. Let's see who in the room can show more honor to the other people in this room. Wait a minute. Is that what this means? Well, sort of. We are, out, we are to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. We'll start at the beginning. What does it mean to show honor to one another? Come on. This is not a rhetorical question. To lift them up? To wash their feet? Be humble before them? Respect? These are good. Give me a nice practical thing that you can do today to show honor to someone. Pray for them. Say hello to them. Listen to them. There's just some people that need to talk. Provide for a need that they have. But wait, I have needs. In fact, my needs are probably bigger than yours. They may not look like it, but I do. So I tell you what. I'll pretend to show honor to you so that you will then show honor to me. <laughs> I like the way this works. Where did we start? Let love be genuine, without hypocrisy, without ulterior motive. We show honor, respect to each other. We do it because we collectively are the body of Christ. We do it because we collectively are made in the image of God. We do it because we collectively, no, you, me, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to think more highly of myself. But I'm supposed to do it without ulterior motive. I will show you honor because you are part of the body of Christ. Go ahead. To show others more honor than you expect for yourself. Hmm. But that's no fun. But that's what it means for love to be genuine. Now, it is interesting, the whole word honor, respect, whatever, 
I'm convinced that we live in a society that says, as long as I'm not showing you dishonor, by definition, I'm showing you honor, right? You know, children, honor your parents. As long as the child's not cussing the parent, they must be showing them honor because they're not dishonoring them, as if honor and dishonor were the only two choices. No, there's a choice in the middle. It's called apathy, okay? To the best of my knowledge, I have never shown dishonor to the governor of North Dakota, whoever he or she is. Now, I've shown a lot of apathy toward the governor of North Dakota because I don't know who he or she is, and I don't really care. But I'm not showing them dishonor. But you see, honor is an action on its own. That's not just dishonor. To show honor is to give preferential treatment to somebody else. Here, you go first. Here, let me help you. Here, you have a need. Let me meet it. And let me meet it in a way that maintains your dignity and doesn't show that I think I'm better than you because I'm helping you meet your need. And that's hard sometimes. And we are to be involved in a contest to see if we can show honor to others more than we expect they show to us. Hmm. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another in brotherly affection. You know, we talk in the scripture about the different words for love. This one right here for brotherly affection is the word, what is it? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. We will not get into a discussion about the state of the city of Philadelphia. What does it mean to show brotherly affection to someone else. I'm expecting lots of discussion here, okay? (laughs) Once again, you're looking out for the good of the other people. (sighs) Love must be genuine. We talked about that, didn't we? We're going to talk about that on every single one of these. With preference to them. It is interesting to me Some of you probably have actual brothers who you may or may not have a good relationship to, who you may or may not have fought with as a child, who you, eh. but I do know this. If my brother calls me up at 3 o'clock and says, I need help, I do not have a discussion of, it's 3 o'clock, are you crazy? (laughs) My brother called, I'm in the car, I'm on the way there. Okay? This is not a Facebook friend. If my brother needs help, I'm there. Conversely, if I need help, I don't call a friend on Facebook if I had any. 
I call a brother. Question. That's what we're supposed to be doing with each other. That is brotherly affection. Serving the other more than ourselves. Well, wait a minute. I'll do it for you if you'll do it back for me. Love must be genuine, without hypocrisy, without ulterior motive. Now, the reality is, what was last week's lesson? God gave us a community. I'm going to help you, and the odds are you're going to help me. You collectively, and that's the weird way it works. I help you, and you help me, and they help you. And who's keeping score? The answer, don't keep score. God has given us gifts and talents. We are to use our gifts and talents. Who helps whom the most? Don't ask stupid questions. Love must be genuine. You do it out of brotherly affection for the other person. Will God use that? Yes. Will you receive a blessing for it? Yes. Should you do it to receive the blessing? Probably not. It's an interesting thing, though. If you get into God watching, and people have debated this forever, God is going to bless you. God has promised he's going to bless you. And you know it. So does that mean everything's done with ulterior motive? No, because I'm helping you with no expectation that you're going to help me back at all, ever. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's not the question. I get this strange feeling we're not going to make it to the end of this list today. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit slothful what is slothful lazy it is interesting the medieval theologians loved making lists so they had their list of the seven deadly sins okay we could have a test to see how many of them we could name we probably wouldn't make it through all seven but we might get there what is the top of the seven deadly sins. Go ahead, take a guess. Pride. Most people put pride at the top of the list. Pride is what says, I'm better than God, I'll do it my way. But it's interesting because others have put slothfulness at the top of the list. Why? In fact, if you read the Canterbury Tales, the very last of the tale is a discussion of the seven deadly sins. And they talk about slothfulness. Why would people put it at the top? Because whatever else is on the list, if you're slothful, you're not going to do anything about it. Whether it's pride or avarice or gluttony, it doesn't matter. I'm going to sit here and watch TV and... Laziness, slothfulness, prevents us from doing anything... To the glory of God. It just kind of consumes us in our nothingness. 
We are to avoid slothfulness in zeal. What does that mean? I am supposed to want to do what God wants me to do. And slothfulness says, I'll do it when my TV show is over. Maybe. Well, I'll think of another excuse then. That'll cover me for at least another hour or two. Slothfulness prevents us from doing what we ought to do. And you ready for this? This assumes that there's something that you ought to be doing. I read an article this week written by a pastor addressed to young men about the problem with video games. And the number of young men, and I'm not saying young men as in teenagers, I'm talking young men in their 20s and 30s who are consumed with video games. Now, I played video games when I was a youngster. The difference is, is that they have consumed video games to the point that it prevents them from doing what they ought to be doing. I mean, I told some young people years ago, some young guys, a young man ought to be doing 12 hours of work every day. Now, that work could be school, that work could be studying, that work could be, you know, a variety of different things, but productive activity. I mean, it doesn't have to be digging ditches. I mean, nobody wants to dig ditches for 12 hours a day. But productive stuff. Why? So you can grow, mature, and be effective serving the body of Christ throughout your life. Now, if I take half of that time and use it to doing something that's not helping the body of Christ, and I might add at the beginning, this is not a condemnation of video games. It's a condemnation of things that distract us. God has given us activities tasks that we are supposed to do and to the extent that we are distracted that is laziness that is slothfulness speaking of sloth we're out of time we will pick up at exactly this point next week and continue our way down the list remember we are saved by the grace of God We are saved to be conformed to his image. We are saved that we might be sanctified in the life that we have right now. And in order to be sanctified, we rely and depend upon the grace of God. But we are also called to do certain things. And we are to do those certain things with zeal, not slothfulness. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. I pray, Lord, that this week we would consider, contemplate what it means to have love that is genuine toward those around us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.